If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out with me, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll read verse 34 here in just a moment. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34 here in just a second. I want to thank Sean for leading us in those songs, and that last one that we sang is is one of my favorites. Um, It's one of my favorites to sing with a group like this enthusiastically as we worship God together and as we anticipate what the future holds for all of us who choose to serve God as He intends. Um, Our congregational focus for this year is better together. And as we were singing that song, I couldn't help but think, We won't just be better together. That's true. We'll be better together in heaven, but we'll all be perfect together as well. And as we think about that concept of being together, usually we think about it in terms of the church, and that's true. We are the people of God. We are the assembly of the saints. But I want us to focus on a different uh, aspect of our togetherness uh, this morning. I want to think about, for just a little bit, the kingdom. Of God. And that image, as we find it especially here in Daniel chapter 2. In the book of Daniel, Daniel, God's prophet, is standing before the greatest and most powerful and wealthiest king of the greatest, most powerful, and wealthiest nation that had ever existed in the history of the world up to that point. And one of those nations that we look back on in the annals of history and we say, Wow, that is incredible for an ancient civilization to have that kind of wealth and power and influence over that period of time. He stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, that greatest king of the kingdom of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was uh, in a spot of bother. Uh, He was upset because he had had this dream, this vision, and he required his wise men to tell him that dream and make interpretation of it, but they could not tell him the dream. But Daniel was found, and he was brought uh, out of his place to interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so, giving all credit to God, that's exactly what he does. And he says, King, you had this dream and you saw this image, and this great image had a head of gold, and as we continue down the statue, it's silver, and then it's bronze, and then it's iron, and then it's iron mixed with baked clay. And after describing this image, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34, he says this, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. And it goes on to say that that these different parts of this image represent four different kingdoms. And the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. And he goes through the different kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire, the Greek empire, and then finally the Roman empire, that fourth kingdom. And if we drop down to verse 44 of the same chapter... In the days of these kingdom, that fourth kingdom, the Romans, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Sean did a great job in leading our songs this morning, thinking about the the glorified ultimate end of that kingdom in heaven, that part of the kingdom. But that kingdom has a, a physical aspect as well. It is the kingdom that stands forever, that is on heaven, in heaven and on earth, that Jesus came proclaiming some 600 years later. In the days of the Romans, in the days of these four, this fourth kingdom, these kings. And if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, I want us to look there at what some of the things that Jesus said about this kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus was tempted by the devil, he had been baptized by John the Baptist, he had gone into the wilderness for 40 days, then he was tempted and he resisted every temptation of the devil on that occasion. And what we see next is he begins his ministry and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing in all the cities and villages in the region of Galilee. And in verse 17, here's the summary that Matthew gives us. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It draws near. It's close. The kingdom of heaven and more specifically, the characteristics of the the citizens of that kingdom, was the theme of Jesus' first sermon. What, What Matthew does is he says, here is what Jesus was preaching about. And if we go through the Sermon on the Mount, start there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. You can follow along. The Scriptures are on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus begins. First sermon, Jesus preaches. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Drop down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Drop down to verse 19 of chapter 5. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men also shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We drop down to the sixth chapter, what's called the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer. What did Jesus instruct the citizens of this kingdom to pray for? That In verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Later in that same chapter, in the 33rd verse, he shows where the focus of these citizens should be. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, these physical things, shall be added to you. And toward the conclusion of this sermon in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he gives a warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus came proclaiming this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven that was at hand. 
But what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about this kingdom? Well, a lot of times we say, well, it's synonymous with the church. And there are places in the New Testament where it's used in that way, in that strictly synonymous sense. But there is a a slightly different emphasis with these two images of the church and the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the rule or reign of God. It is the outward physical manifestation of the kingdom. Uh, is called the people of God, the church. So the church is people. The citizens of the kingdom of God. So when you think kingdom, think rule or reign. That God is reigning. His realm, His dominion, His dumb, right? Kingdom. And when you think church, think people. Think the citizens of that kingdom. So kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you rule and have dominion. But when we think church, think the people, the assembly, the the citizens who make up that kingdom. We continue forward in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and really we can find this in all of the Gospels to a certain degree, but Matthew really emphasizes the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We go forward to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus moves from Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we see Him preaching in in this sort of way. And In chapter 13, we're introduced to a new kind of teaching by Jesus, and that's teaching in parables. And in verses 10 and 11, Jesus made reference to revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Read in verse 10, And the disciples came and said to Him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you, you who are seeking to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, those who are hard-hearted and not seeking, it has not been given. Jesus came to reveal this mystery. To reveal His kingdom. And the Jews, the ones who had been waiting on that kingdom for 2,000 years, they missed it. That ever happened to you? You know, you're you're waiting, you're looking for something. Maybe you're at a ball game, and it's one of those ball games that's it's just super slow, right? Uh, baseball sometimes is that way, right? So it's just a pitching duel, and pitch after pitch, and strikeout after strikeout. Some people are kind of upset by the looks on the faces right now. And so you say, man, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And what always happens? You go to the bathroom, and you hear out there the crack of the bat, the cheer of everybody, and I missed it, right? I've been waiting all this time. I missed the action. It's kind of what happened with the Jews, For 2,000 years they had been anticipating this kingdom. For 2,000 years they had been looking forward to this Messiah, this promised one of the seed of Abraham. And he gets there and they miss it. Jesus Himself is proclaiming this kingdom. And He's trying to describe to them what that kingdom is like. And for so many of them it was not given because their hearts were hardened and they, they missed what it was Jesus was really saying and doing with this kingdom. Why? Why did they miss it? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day placed too great an emphasis on the external, on the physical, on the carnal. They placed too much of an emphasis on the physical in their understanding and application of the law, right? Jesus starts from the very beginning in the Sermon on the Mount saying, You have heard it was said unto you, but I say unto you this. And it was all about, well, this is what you do, but who cares about the heart? Who cares about what's in your mind when you do it or don't do it? And Jesus says, no, that's not what the kingdom is about. It's not just about physical, external things. 
about the inner man. It's about the spiritual. And they missed it in regard to their understanding of the Messiah and who the Messiah was going to be. They imagined this... They imagine this physical warrior king who is going to lead them in triumphant battle against the Romans and all the other Gentiles and pagans and Samaritans. They missed it in regard to who this king was. A king who was going to die on a cross at the hands of these Romans he was supposed to defeat. And obviously, they missed it in regard to what kind of kingdom it was going to be. Not a physical kingdom, greater than the days of David and Solomon. That's what they were expecting, where they could all sit on their little thrones around the Messiah. Jesus came to establish something different, something better, something greater than just controlling a a little piece of land on a little ball in a great universe. Jesus' goal was not social social reconstruction, creating some physical kingdom. It was spiritual reconstruction in the hearts of people. And Jesus was proclaiming a spiritual kingdom. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Those were the things they were dividing over in the church. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not physical or primarily concerned with physical things. It is concerned with the spiritual characteristics of its citizens. Are we righteous? Do we have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? And the spiritual kingdom was ruled by a spiritual king. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, where Jesus stands before Pilate at His trial, and Pilate is trying to get out of Jesus who exactly He is. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate understood the implication of what Jesus said. He said, oh, so you are a king then. And Jesus answered straightforwardly to Pilate, you say rightly that I am a king. You got that part right. But it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom ruled by a spiritual king for spiritual citizens. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Not will be. Our citizenship is in heaven now. Jesus always referred to this kingdom as either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He never called it the kingdom of Israel. Why? Because it was spiritual in nature. And it encompassed so much more than the land and the people of the Old Testament. Now please understand, I've said spiritual about a dozen times already. When I say spiritual, I do not mean that it is a figurative kingdom. It is a literal kingdom. It really exists. It is spiritual as opposed to physical. A kingdom with physical borders and a capital and an army, that's not what we're talking about. We don't physically fight and kill or enter into negotiations with neighboring lands in order to expand the borders of this kingdom. That's what the Jews expected, but at the same time, we better fight for the cause of Christ and kill the old man of sin. 
Those are more than figures. It's a, it's a hard distinction, distinction to draw, but it is an important one. This is a real kingdom of God. And Jesus describes this spiritual kingdom in many of His parables using everyday physical things to draw out greater spiritual realities. Even there in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 19, 24, 44, 45, and 47, He says the kingdom of heaven is like... And He explains what it is like. But I want you to notice with me especially, if you're still there in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. Jesus says this, Another parable He put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Um, I've got some mustard seeds. I was one of those tourists. This is from, it says on there, from the holy land of Bethlehem on them. But these are real mustard seeds in here. Uh, I don't know how many, but a lot. They're awfully small. A lot of pressure doing this in front of everybody. Let me see if I can hold up just one. Oh, they stick to my fingers. One, two, three, four, five. Right there on that finger. See that? You can't see it? I'm going to have to go through the whole thing. I got five right there. I can. That's some young eyes right there. What does that turn into? That tiny little seed. One of those seeds turns into this great bush and great tree. That's from the Holy Lands. Y'all see Miss Hazel right there. Look at it growing up on these other trees here where the birds can come and nest in its branches. What is that describing? Describing growth, right? From something tiny, from something small, into something huge. The next parable in verse 33 Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Very similar parable, but it's interesting to me, we see Jesus addressing everybody. Everybody's a part of this kingdom, right? He gives an agricultural example, a man goes out to sow, and then he gives a home example. There's a woman cooking in her kitchen, and she is using leaven, she's using yeast. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of baking growing up, but... We love pizza in my family, so a few years ago I learned how to make pizza crust. And so uh, this is some leaven, some yeast. You take a third of one of these passages for the packages for the recipe that I particularly use, a third of this little third-filled package, and you put it in a ton of flour and water and so forth to where, for our recipe, once it rises, it fills this whole bowl. And this yeast... This, this tiny little amount of, of leaven, it goes throughout all of that dough. You can't take it out. And that's the way the kingdom is. It doesn't just grow, it influences. And it is permeated through the whole earth where this kingdom influences in every corner of our, glo- our globe. And so what's the big point that Jesus is trying to get across in these two uh, parables? 
From humble beginnings, the kingdom will experience amazing growth and amazing influence. And that is exactly what happened. The kingdom of heaven would have a small and despised beginning, like a mustard seed or a, or a little bit of yeast, but it's followed by this incredible growth and influence. And the Old Testament prophecy foretold this inauspicious start concerning even the Messiah. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, um, Isaiah prophesies well before the time of Daniel. And he's talking about the king of this kingdom, but he's described in terms of a suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Nobody's going to believe this, Isaiah says. For he, Christ, the Messiah, the King, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Just the opposite. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. There, kingdom citizens, is your king. This king who was despised and rejected, who came from such humble beginnings, born in a barn, in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, the, the worst city and the worst part of the country and the smallest and most insignificant country in the world. And he begins his ministry in the little area of Galilee, associates himself with fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. This is not kingly behavior, except for our king. And the unpromising beginning of the kingdom would be but a precursor of the explosive, astonishing growth. That small stone that was cut without hands in Daniel becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And the growth of the church in the first century certainly confirmed the truth of Jesus' parable. There were 120 disciples who were gathered in an upper room. That was all that was left, seemingly, of this movement of following this Jesus of Nazareth. And in just one day in Acts chapter 2, that number swells to over 3,000. Soon, just a few weeks later, it's over 5,000 in Acts chapter 4. And the number of disciples continues, not to be added, continues to multiply, it says. And it spreads throughout all Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6, through Judea and Galilee and Samaria in Acts chapter 9, and eventually it spreads throughout the, all the known Roman world and then the entire world, including our part of it. You, brothers and sisters, if you are part of Christ's church, you are part of a kingdom that has no borders, that is found all around the world, that goes backwards and forwards in time. And it includes Peter and Paul and John and Dorcas and Mary and Martha and Barnabas and Stephen and Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla. It includes the faithful in Christ who have passed on that we know personally. It includes the angels and the heavenly host. And it includes all those who are faithful Christians today. And it is here, this kingdom. Now, in the hearts of all those who submit to the rule or reign of God. Whether we know those people or not, and some people today make the same mistake as the Jews. 
anticipating a physical kingdom because they see the church and think, it can't be grand enough to be this kingdom that was talked about by Daniel and Jesus. And my response is, you need to open your eyes. Open your eyes beyond your little corner of your little corner of your little world. The kingdom of God is so much bigger. And while I encourage you to shine your little light in your little corner, that's what I'm trying to do. The kingdom is so much bigger than that. This is the kind of mentality that we need to have. When we think about being better together, it is not just this group, although that is true. We are better together with all those who serve God in sincerity and truth. This kind of kingdom mentality, a kingdom mindset, does some things for us. And let me make application in this way this morning. A kingdom mentality or mindset, number one, expands our reality of the church. That it is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would, Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul begins this section and this sentence by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on to describe our blessings that we have by grace in Christ, that we're chosen, that we're predestined, that this was all to the praise of the glory of God's grace. But I want us to read, especially if you would with me in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. Now, we're going to learn later that that mystery is found in the church, that that mystery is revealed, that both Jew and Gentile can come together to be servants of God. But he summarizes all of that in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In our King, all things are gathered together in one, in heaven and on earth in Him. Under this king, these two realities are united as one kingdom. The spiritual realm, where so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are, those who have passed on, and even on earth, there is so much more to the church and to the kingdom than Timberland Drive or Lufkin, Texas. Bill Bynum was here talking about the work in the Czech Republic uh, back in April the 24th, I believe. And we have spiritual and financial fellowship with Brother Bill Bynum in that work that he's doing over in the Czech Republic. Next week, um, Brother Carlos Bello, who is from and works in Chile, will be here and he'll be talking to us about the work that is done in Chile. So we have uh, Eastern Europe, we have South America, and within a few weeks we're talking to these men who are working in those places that we help support in the work that they're doing to evangelize, to preach the gospel, often to people and in places where they've heard very little about Jesus 
We have fellowship with them. We're partners with them. And not just with those preachers, but with all of the brethren who are in those places where they preach. Though we are not citizens of the same physical country, we are all citizens of the same spiritual one, the kingdom of God. When Bill was there, when Bill was here, I should say, uh, he showed us a lot of pictures on Sunday night of, of the work in the Czech Republic and some of the places where he was going to be and the people he was going to be with. And one of the pictures he put up there, um, I almost said this audibly, you know me, um, when it came up, I was like, I've been there. In, in 2006, when I was 20 years old, I had the opportunity to go with a speech and debate team to, to Prague in the Czech Republic. And we were there over a weekend as, long, as well as most of a week. And we made arrangements to, to worship with some brethren in the Czech Republic. And uh, unbeknownst to me, it ends up being the same group of brethren that, that Bill was talking about as well. It was one of the most uh, interesting experiences, eye-opening experiences of my life. Remember, I was 20 years old. Um, I was from West Texas. I grew up in a congregation, a little country church of about 15 people. The only, only person my age in that congregation. And so now I'm in Prague, in Eastern Europe, worshiping with about 50, 60, 70 Christians in another language. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, right? After our worship service, uh, the brethren there, through the preacher who was interpreting for us, they invited us to, to eat with them. And they were all getting together to eat in what we would call a potluck. And we were so excited because we were going to get some real, authentic Czech food. I learned later in the trip that authentic, real Czech food isn't really that great, at least not to my American taste, right? And they come in. And they've got these big bags, and they put them on the table, and they start getting them out of the bags, and you know what it was? It was KFC, <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we learned that they did that through the preacher because they wanted us, this group of American college students, to feel at home. How incredible. These folks, by American standards, would have been very poor. And they could have easily looked down on us as a bunch of uh, spoiled American brats on what amounted to a glorified vacation for a speech and debate tournament. But instead, they opened up their heart and their home. They inquired if we had a place to stay, and we did. They talked with us. They loved us. And though there was a language barrier, boy, I tell you, there was no spiritual barrier between us. And I realized that day, more than I had ever realized before, how big the kingdom of God is. Anywhere I go, virtually anywhere in this world, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who would take me into their home and love me because we have fellowship together. Because we serve the same King. Kingdom of God. Ah, we need to expand our reality of how big that kingdom is. Secondly, a kingdom mindset eliminates our rivalries within the church. Think about 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 where 
Paul says to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The question is, does God rule in their heart or not? Do they depart from iniquity because they are following after the rule or reign of Christ? That is the question. If you turn to Luke chapter 17, I think we have a good example of this. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Again, they're thinking physical. They're like, when are you going to lead the revolt? That's what they're thinking, right? He answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That is physical sight, right? Nor will they say, see here, or see over there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It is in your midst. It is in your hearts. That's what Jesus is communicating here. So don't think that you're going to be able to say, See, look, look at everything that's going on over in Israel. The kingdom of God is about to come. Jesus says, you've missed it. The kingdom of God is here within the hearts of those who are willing to submit their lives to the rule of the king. And when we think about the rule of reign, or reign of God in the hearts of people, we realize that it's not about getting people to come to our church. It's about making sure that people are, the, are citizens of the kingdom of God. That God is ruling in their heart. I want people to get to heaven. I, I want to be there when we all get to heaven and we sing to God in His glory. And whether they come to our church or not, I want them to be added to the Lord's church, to Christ's church. My grandfather, a man by the name of Van Cash, I remember him saying a number of times when I was growing up, some Christians are more concerned about church-anity than they are Christianity. We are to celebrate every true conversion. Every time someone is baptized into Christ, the angels rejoice, and so do we. And whether that baptism takes place in Prague or in Chile or in Lufkin, and we aren't looking to steal members from anybody else. If where they're attending is where they're going to get to heaven, then God be with them, go with God. One of the things that I love to do is I love going and holding meetings. It's kind of like this love-hate relationship, you know, when I'm about to go, um, even this past weekend, I'm, I'm about to leave, and I'm about to leave my family, and I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to get away from all of you guys. I'm like, there's so much to do back home, so many things that I could be doing, and those sorts of things. And I know it's in good hands. Uh, Ted Lankford is always uh, good to remind me of that. Were you gone, he says. But at the same time, I, you know, I have a sense of responsibility and so forth. And so as I'm driving there, I'm always thinking, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And then on the way home, I'm always like, man, I'm so glad I did that. I, I'm glad for a couple of reasons. I, I'm glad because I have the opportunity to go and preach the gospel. And I'm always grateful for that opportunity. I'm grateful for the opportunity to expand the borders of the kingdom. And that goes far beyond what happens right here in our local church, but to local churches all over the state and the country and the world. But it is also a great reminder to me 
that it is good and encouraging work that is going on in other places. I am reminded that there are others just trying to be New Testament Christians too. And I get to see others working, working from the same book, with the same goals, serving the same king, because we are on the same team. And there is no room for rivalry. We need to have a kingdom mindset, a kingdom mentality. That I want all the churches that are doing as God would have them to do, I want all of them to do well. And then finally, number three, it encourages our recruitment to the church. Please understand that. That's the church, to Christ's church. You have to be part of this kingdom in order to be saved. And that's our desire for all this morning. And you're here this morning. That's, that's the cue, right? You're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. That's the cue for something incredibly special to be offered. Entrance into the kingdom of God. I have some people in my family who were not born as citizens of the United States. And for one of those individuals in particular, um, it took seven years for them ultimately to gain that citizenship with great work, uh, at pretty great cost, and they view that citizenship something so incredibly precious because it was a choice that they made to become a citizen. Me, I'm grateful for my citizenship, but I was born into it, right? And maybe that was part of the problem with the Jews. That kingdom was something that they were just born into. They were born a Jew. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven... It's not something that you're physically born into. It is something that you are spiritually born into by your own choice. That this is something that I can be a part of. Even me, with my sins and my shortcoming and my shame, God can cleanse all of that and make me His, part of His kingdom, part of His family. We're reminded of what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It is not enough to just cry out to Him. It must be humble submission that desires to do God's will that must be found. What is the will of God for you this morning? The end of the same Gospel where we've spent our time this morning, in Matthew chapter 28, and verses 18-20, through 20, we see Jesus giving final instructions to His apostles before He ascends back into heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, in verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. You know what that means? The kingdom, the rule or reign of Christ, I have the authority, I'm the king, he says. Now what I need you to do is go out and recruit citizens for this kingdom. Go, therefore, and make disciples, followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, by the authority of God, the trinite God, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And so now it stands to you. Have you done this? Have you submitted yourself to the rule of the King? Have you been baptized by the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And have you begun to learn all that God has commanded so that you might do it, become part of His church, become a citizen of His kingdom? There's nothing that would make us happier. And the angels in heaven will rejoice along with us if you come now while together we stand and while we sing. There it is.